I've had hundreds of big conversations, and my conversation partners share wisdom I carry with me wherever I go. Across the years, people have asked for shorter-form distillations of some of my favorite moments, something you could listen to in the time it takes to make a cup of coffee or tea, and something shareable. The Becoming Wise podcast is that offering, and we've just launched its second season. Take 10 minutes to reset your day and replenish your sense of yourself and the world. Never miss an episode. Subscribe to Becoming Wise wherever podcasts are found. On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation. The Templeton Foundation harnesses the power of the sciences to explore the deepest and most perplexing questions facing humankind. Learn about cutting-edge research on the science of generosity, gratitude, and purpose at templeton.org forward slash discoveries. In the folds of this European civilization, I was born and shall die, imprisoned, conditioned, depressed, exalted, and inspired. I flew round and round with the zeitgeist, waving my pen and lifting faint voices to explain, expound, and exhort, to see, foresee, and prophesy to the few who could or would listen. The perhaps most famous line from The Souls of Black Folk, the problem of the 20th century is the problem of the color line. I mean, first of all, it is prophetic. You know, that is not something we have as yet resolved. He saw that. He understood that. And I think that he understood that as a soul crisis for white people, for black people, and for the polis in general. This hour, we celebrate the imprint of W.E.B. Du Bois on the American soul and the way his passionate and poetic intelligence might enliven 21st century life on the color line and beyond it. William Edward Burkhart Du Bois was born three years after the end of the Civil War, and he died on the eve of the March on Washington. He was the first black man to receive a doctorate from Harvard University. He also co-founded the NAACP. He was a prolific writer on sociology, history, economics, and politics. Du Bois remains a powerful voice for many of the people who gave us the civil rights movement and for all of us navigating the still unfolding, unfinished business of civil rights now. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Here's the poet Maya Angelou sharing her love of Du Bois by phone with me just weeks before her death. Well, I grew up in a little village in Arkansas during the 30s and 40s. Everything was segregated. And so the black school, uh, which I attended, had black teachers, and we used books about blacks when we could find them. And, of course, W.B. Du Bois was one of the great heroes in our world. We were so proud of him. Then uh, I moved out to California to my mother, I got a scholarship to a college, mm-hmm. and they said that Dr. Du Bois was coming to speak. I went home and told my mother, I must go, although it's night, and she must take me, because they've invited Dr. Du Bois, and all those people are white. They mm-hmm. don't know Du Bois is black. I was so <laughs> sure that they had no idea. And Dr. Du Bois came up the side aisle against the wall. Fortunately... At 15, I was almost six foot, so I could see, and I thought, oh, my goodness, they're going to see the Negro. Will they get up and walk out? No, they stood up and applauded. That was over 70 years ago. I have not forgotten it. W.E.B. Du Bois grew up in the relatively tolerant and integrated northern town of Great Barrington, Massachusetts. It was only when he went south to Fisk University in Tennessee that he awakened to what many of us think of as the iconic African-American culture of that time. He discovered what he would call in 1903 the souls of black folk. Later, we'll hear from the poet Elizabeth Alexander about the resonance Du Bois has for her and for new generations. First, esteemed scholar Arnold Rampersad. He's the author of The Art and Imagination of W.E.B. Du Bois. I'm curious just to start with, you know, how and when did you first become aware of W.E.B. Du Bois? 
I became aware of W.B. Du Bois in graduate school, I think. Uh, that's when I first read The Souls of Black Folk, and it, uh, Du Bois's book from 1903, and it had a very powerful effect on me. And then when I started reading what people had written about Du Bois, I didn't think that they fully appreciated the depth and, and breadth of his intelligence, his sensibility, his imagination. Mm. Now, that was presumptuous of me. Um, but it did give me a kind of push uh, when I decided I would, uh, I would devote my doctoral dissertation to, to Du Bois, especially to his creative work, and then later on expanded that uh, to do a kind of intellectual biography of Du Bois entirely. Yeah. Uh, so that's when I got to know and love Du Bois. And is it right that you grew up in Trinidad and Tobago? I grew up in Trinidad and Tobago, mm-hmm. yes. I came to this country when I was in my mid-twenties okay. to go to college. And um, before then, I'd never heard of Du Bois. And even in Ohio, where I went to undergraduate school, at that time, between 1965 and 1968, there were no books by African Americans on any syllabus that I was exposed to. I wonder if you could just say a little bit more about, you know, you talked about how you'd been exposed to so little in the way of black intellectual writing, even through um, in your education. And you read The Souls of Black Folk and you were uh, blown away. Um, Could you say a little bit more about what grabbed you there? You know, you begin to read uh, a book. Um, You don't know where it it's going to take you, in this case, The Souls of Black Folk. In a sense, it's it's autobiography, but it's an autobiography that's close in some respects to your own experience of the world um, as a minority person. And then you see, in the case of The Souls of Black Folk, a mind, a commanding mind, expanding into history, into sociology, but also into psychology and into art, because he is continually seeing the world, uh, both as a scientist and as a, a lyrical mm. being, and, um, and giving voice in a very varied language to the complexity of the world. And, and you're seeing yourself and your own personal situation being put in, it, in, in, in the context you would like to see it put. Um, you, you see your own pain, your own, you know, your own dilemmas orchestrated in this marvelous way by an intelligence that you know you just have to stand back and and admire and uh, and that you're profoundly grateful for because uh, you have not seen it done by anyone else and that's why I reread the souls of black folk again and again and it continues to this day to be able to move me as almost uh, as, as few other works can move me mm-hmm. You know, you write a lot about him as a mass of paradoxes. And, you know, here's one way you wrote it. Product of black and white, poverty and privilege, love and hate. He was of New England and the South, an alien and an American, a provincial and a cosmopolite, nationalist and communist, Victorian and modern. Um, I think that there's something in his kind of multiracial, multicultural heritage and that line that he walked all of his life that that actually seems to belong in some ways more to our time than it did to his. Do you know what I'm describing that? Oh, yes, I, I do know what you're describing. And I think you're quite right that his, uh, in many respects, his, his dilemma, his agenda, his passions, um, his sensibility, all of those things are very much at home in our world. But I think that... Um, you can turn your, your back on him only if you're determined to turn your back on, on history, on an understanding of the past, uh, and also on, on a mind, his, you know, that seized on the, the problem of uh, blackness in America, the problem of race in America and in the modern world, because he did say famously that the problem of the 20th century is a problem of the color line. Right. Um, so he, he had a grasp of... Uh, uh, you know, of the, of the real world in front of him, and he anticipated our own time. No doubt about that. There, there's this wonderful passage. Um, you know, it's almost you get the feeling, this was in this chapter called On the Training of Black Men. You get this sense that the life of the mind was 
in some sense helped him transcend this, as he said, this problem, being a problem as a black man. He's, you know, he wrote, I sit with Shakespeare and he winces not across the color line. I move arm in arm with Balzac and Dumas. I summon Aristotle and Aurelius and what soul I will, and they come all graciously with no scorn nor condescension. So wed with truth, I dwell above the veil. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Is this the life you grudge us, O oh, nightly America? Is this the life you long to change into the dull red hideousness of Georgia? Are you so afraid lest, peering from this high Pisgah, between Philistine and Malachite, we cite the promised land. <laughs> yes. mm-hmm. His training was, was really quite remarkable, and his sensibility also remarkable. I mean, he did have the soul of a poet, um, but also the objective capacities of the scientist. Uh, but he was trained in history in a very severe uh, sort of way, um, where you know the truth could be arrived at, uh, facts were extraordinarily important, the feelings of the historian were to be suppressed. Uh, objectivity was the goal. Uh, come to conclusions, but make sure that those conclusions are not in any way biased by your feelings, your prejudices, whatever. Um, And it took him a long time to realize that uh, he couldn't live that way, um, that he had to, in fact, draw on his inner emotional resources that were themselves shaped by, you know, his life experience, the world about him, his fascination with language, um, you know, a much looser, much more creative um, world that was also demanding, but in a very different way. So one of the things that started to intrigue me as I began to, um, in the first instance, get a sense of how he's understood academically is his legacy and his intellect seem to be very secularized um, in a lot of the ways he's written about and interpreted. To me, it, it also kind of parallels the way King's very deep and primary grounding in theology and religion was kind of secularized. He became, after his death, a political figure primarily and a preacher second, and of course the order was reversed. Now, Du Bois obviously had a complicated relationship, both to to black churches and to white Christianity, to Christianity in general. But it seems to me that to not take seriously, to not use the word spiritual or, you know, and flesh that out in his life and legacy is to miss a lot of the power of what he did. And let I me, mean, let's just start with when he uses the word soul, the soul of black folk. Um, what does he mean by the word soul? Well, that's a very good question. And um, it's uh, perhaps not what a medieval, um, you know, yeah. penitent would have meant by the word soul. It has something to do with consciousness, uh, sort of psychologically determined consciousness. Um, he's saying that you know there is this essence in us that is a combination of a will to the spirit, um, our experiences, our awareness of uh, ourselves, our awareness of the world. And so he talks again and again in the souls of black folk about at the dawn of the 20th century about the business of the soul and about divided souls. There being an mm-hmm. American soul and an African soul mm-hmm. within the, the African-American and how they are at war with one another because they have different origins almost and different goals and are subjected to different forces and that the essence of black life is a kind of... Uh, often heroic, uh, sometimes disastrous struggle to reconcile these two souls. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today we're experiencing the resonance of W.E.B. Du Bois for contemporary life. I'm with the literary critic and Du Bois biographer Arnold Rampersad. I mean, here's just the opening lines of The Souls of Black Folk when he says, um, and he writes, Between me and the other world, there is an ever unasked question, unasked by some through feelings of delicacy, by others through the difficulty of rightly framing it. All nevertheless flutter around it. They approach me in a half-hesitant sort of way, eye me curiously or compassionately, and then instead of saying directly, 
how does it feel to be a problem? They say, I know an excellent colored man in my town, or I fought at Mechanicsville, or do not these southern outrages make your blood boil? At these I smile, or am interested, or reduce the boiling to a simmer as the occasion may require. To the real question, how does it feel to be a problem? I answer seldom a word. Which is really putting the issue of race in in an existential context. Yes, I like the um, the rest of the paragraph, or, mm. or perhaps the bulk of the the next paragraph. Well, would you like to read of, some of that? Well, I, I I could. I mean, it's it's important. Yeah. For the first time, he encounters racial prejudice when a, a tall newcomer, a girl in his class, refuses to take part in, in a little game that everyone was playing. Then it dawned upon me with a certain suddenness that I was different from the others, or like mayhap in heart and life and longing, but shut out from their world by a vast veil. I had thereafter no desire to tear down that veil, to creep through. I held all beyond it in common contempt and lived above it in a region of blue sky and great wandering shadows. That sky was bluest when I could beat my mates at examination time or beat them at a foot race or even beat their stringy heads. Alas, with the years, all this fine contempt began to fade, for the worlds I longed for and all their dazzling opportunities were theirs, not mine. With other black boys, the strife was not so fiercely sunny. Their youth shrunk into tasteless sycophancy or into silent hatred of the pale world about them and mocking distrust of everything white or wasted itself in a bitter cry. Why did God make me an outcast and a stranger in mine own house? And it's after that that uh, that burst or that whatever you want to call it that he launches into his discussion of uh, of the divided souls, the twin warring souls of the African American, um, and how blacks have no true self consciousness, um, but always see themselves through the eyes yeah. of whites, basically, and how how impossible almost that is to. To have such a situation and to be able to become fully human, really. Yes, and what is so striking to me about that is how resonant it is. I mean, he was he was looking at a world post-Civil War when there had been, in some ways, monumental efforts made to create, well, certainly to create liberty that wasn't there before. But he was looking at uh, the very deep failure of that at the same time, the the unfinished business of Reconstruction. And it seems to me that a century later, you know, having had the Civil Rights Movement, which was really taking off as he died, something that we're pondering deeply is the unfinished business of civil rights. His analysis of the dilemma facing blacks when they'll have to take into consideration when they come up against uh, racism, when they come up against the entrenched injustice that uh, I think African-Americans face on on a daily basis. His analysis um, was first put forward uh, circa 1900, but really it still has enormous uh, resonance because the basic factors remain, remain the same, really. Um, how do you maintain sanity? How do you become productive? How do you, how do you realize your complete potential as a human being uh, when you are constantly dealing with um, something that seems almost um, undefeatable? You know? Yeah. Um, you've written biographies of a number of very important African American figures in American history: Langston Hughes, um, Ralph Ellison. Uh, was it Jackie Robinson? Did you write a biography of Jackie Robinson? I did Robinson, a biography right? of Jackie uh, Robinson. I think Arthur yes. Ashe, you were involved in that. Um, yes. But I wonder, and with, with those figures and other names who come readily to mind in, in American imaginations, you know, what, what would you want to name as, as Du Bois' distinctive voice and contribution? Well, I, I've, I think that his... Um that he was extraordinarily intelligent, uh, but he was also very, very well trained, and he engaged the world as you know, as a historian and as a sociologist, 
um, always aware of a profound commitment to the lives of uh, his fellow black Americans at a time, uh, say around 1900, uh, when they were in profound distress. Mm -hmm. So there was always something heroic and persevering and determined to me about his career, his example. Uh, Langston Hughes was um, relentless in his own way in trying to apply uh, his poetic gift to the world around him. But Du Bois was even more dedicated in many respects yeah. and uh, harder on himself, pushing, probing at every point, willing to be a pariah finally, to be unpopular um, in order to carry the, the you know, the the flag of justice to the fore, to make his life be consequential uh, and not an, an, an ornament or an, or an afterthought. Um, that sets him apart or that set him apart as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, wonderful. I, I wanted to ask you, are you aware of who Walter Brueggemann is? He's a great scholar of the prophets of the Hebrew Bible. No, I'm And he really talked not. about how the prophets, <clears throat> the prophets are always poets, and it's with poetic language uh -huh. that they rise above the merely political and have something Absolutely. other than merely political impact. And he talked about Absolutely. how he says that, you know, the line we all remember of Martin Luther King is actually a line of poetry. I have a dream is actually a line yes. of poetry. Um, and uh, I just a, a line of, of Langston Hughes's poetry. <laughs> is it really? It's a line of Langston Hughes's poetry? Well, I think, I mean, Langston Hughes always believed that. I, I mean, didn't that, know uh, that. Well, well, because he had uh, had consistently invoked the motif of the dream uh, in his poetry, in his civil rights poetry. Um, so I he see. always felt that that uh, Luther King <laughs> owed him one. <laughs> but, uh, but that's another story. Yeah, okay. You know, I probably read Du Bois in college, but just mm -hmm. the poetry, as you're saying, of his lyricism and how that just exalts and gives this power to what he's saying that's just very un unusual. You see, and that was completely, almost completely left out of accounts by historians yes. of uh, Du Bois's life and career. They just did not see it. Uh, they're not trained to respond to poetry, but uh, you're quite right. I mean, that it is, in fact, the poetic element in Du Bois that lifts him above only history and mere you know, sociology to make him the, the influential uh, profoundly moving uh, presence that he became. Yeah. It's the poetry that, that did it. Yeah. I, I wanted to ask you to read, I believe it's the, the reading from him that you had at the top of the first chapter, uh, chapter one, The Making of the Man, of your biography. The, the reading that begins oh. in the folds of this European civilization, I was born and shall die. And I don't know where it's from. You said Du Bois, 1940. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. That would be probably from from uh, Dusk of Dawn, his autobiography. Okay. If it's 1940. Yeah. Uh, in the folds of this European civilization, I was born and shall die, imprisoned, conditioned, depressed, exalted, and inspired. Integrally, a part of it, and yet much more significant, one of its rejected parts, one who expressed in life and action and made vocal to many a single whirlpool of social entanglement and inner psychological paradox, which always seemed to me more significant for the meaning of the world today than other similar and related problems. Crucified on the vast wheel of time, I flew round and round with the zeitgeist, waving my pen and lifting faint voices to explain, expound, and exhort, to see, foresee, and prophesy to the few who could or would listen. Thus, very evidently to me and to others, I did little to create my day or greatly change it, but I did exemplify it, and thus for all time, my life is significant for all lives of men. Arnold Rampersad is Emeritus Professor at Stanford University and author of The Art and Imagination of W.E.B. Du Bois. 
After a short break, poet Elizabeth Alexander on how Du Bois speaks to new generations and to our navigation of the ever-evolving color line. You can always listen again and hear the unedited version of every show we do on the On Being podcast feed, now with special occasional extras wherever you like to listen. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, bringing the life and ideas of W.E.B. Du Bois into relief for the 21st century. He is one of the most celebrated black intellectuals of American and global history. He was born five years after the Emancipation Proclamation and died on the eve of the March on Washington. I discovered the poet Elizabeth Alexander's reverence for Du Bois in an essay she herself had forgotten, something she wrote years ago for a book called Saving the Race, Conversations on Du Bois from a Collective Memoir of Souls. Let's just start by, I want to hear, you know, if you can recall kind of your earliest memories of knowing of Du Bois growing up in Washington in the 60s and 70s. Yes, I think of the Dr. Du Bois. That was always how he was referred to in my family. And I think that was very important because he was someone to be respected that even though African Americans had attained higher education by the time I was a child, I know that I knew he was the first African American to get his PhD from Harvard University, that it was an extraordinary thing to have become educated in the way that he did so that we ought to give him that title. Mm -hmm. And later on, I learned, uh, and there are a number of African American elders of a generation for whom only the letters of their names are what we know, Mm W-E-B, that that was strategic, a way that he could not be called William or Bill, that someone would have to call him boy or call him Dr. Du Bois. It forced the issue of his stature. Uh, And I think that that interested me a great deal. And I Mm. remember learning that when I was probably a young teenager. Um, I didn't read The Souls of Black Folk until I was in college. And I remember very much reading it for the first time sophomore year with Professor Michael Cook in a big survey course on African-American literature. It was a graduate course. And at that time, you know, the the only place that Du Bois was taught alongside Booker T. Washington and other greats of the tradition. And I remember thinking, oh, not only is he a great man, he's a beautiful writer. And how that felt like such a gift that these important ideas came forward to us in language that was unforgettable. Yeah, and I think that I went into this project of investigating him. Well, let me just read, like, here's the Wikipedia entry Mm -hmm. about W.E.B. Du Bois. W.E.B. Du Bois was an American sociologist, historian, civil rights activist, pan-Africanist, author and editor. After graduating from Harvard, where he was the first African-American to earn a doctorate, he became a professor of history, sociology, and economics at Atlanta University. Du Bois was one of the co-founders of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the NAACP, in 1909. So those are his credentials. I started very quickly as I was reading The Souls of Black Folk to realize, you know, there is, I thought at first I was discovering this spiritual legacy of his that's been lost. But I feel as I've traced that more and more, what I've discovered is his lyricism and his poetry and how that is such a distinctive contribution of his. Uh, Well, absolutely. And I think that he believed that felicitous, careful language that when you look at The Souls of Black Folk, which is a book that I teach and the book that I return to of his millions, (laughs) um, when the Bible is absolutely its antecedent. And when you look at the construction of those sentences, when you look at its rise and fall, 
that's what he's patterning himself on. And I think that, you know, the, the, the perhaps most famous line from the souls of black folk, the problem of the 20th century is the problem of the color line. I mean, first of all, it is prophetic. Yes. You know, that is not something we have as yet resolved. He saw that. He understood that. Um, and I think that he understood that as a soul crisis for white people, for black people, and for the polis in general. Yes. Because it is. It, right. And and even there, I feel like, yes, to the extent that anybody's heard a quote of Du Bois, they may have heard the, the problem of the 20th century is the problem of the color line. They heard it as a political statement. I mean, I think it's mm-hmm. memorable, perhaps, because it has this cadence. Mm-hmm. But also, as you're saying... What he was talking about was something much bigger than laws or rights. Absolutely. Or, 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 or legal or, or social structures. He was talking about the human condition and absolutely. not just the human condition of people who are not white. No, that's absolutely true. And I yeah. think that in that regard, he makes space for James Baldwin in very, very clear ways in the way that James Baldwin talks about the race crisis as being really a crisis about the inability to imagine each other, the inability to sit in someone else's chair, to stand in someone else's shoes. That is all made possible by Du Bois. Um, I think also in thinking for today and going back to souls, what really, really, really struck me, not just because I'm an educator, Um, but his belief in education. You know, it's very easy now to say, you must get an education, and education is sacred, and education, in fact, is holy. Hmm. But when you consider that he is writing 1903, in the years leading up to 1903, he's talking to a first generation out of bondage. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so, like, let's just kind of situate ourselves in time there. And when he's talking about what an education can do, what it means, he says, you know, um, I marked yes, do, because he says it yeah. far better than I can. So beautiful. We are training not isolated men, but a living group of men, nay, a group within a group. And the final product of our training must be neither a psychologist nor a brick mason, but a man. And to make men... We must have ideals, broad, pure, and inspiring ends of living, not sordid money-getting, not apples of gold. And, you know, it, it, it goes on in that vein. Uh, and then one more um, quotation here, and I think this is incredible that he's talking about the function of the university. Mm. He's not talking about elementary school. Mm. He's imagining the university. And when he writes this, 1903, no black woman will attain the Ph.D. until 1923. Mm -hmm. So this is a dream, educating black people. And we just have to, of course, add women where he says men, you know, educating black people. And also he was very explicitly aware of of women. Absolutely. Right. So, I mean, I think a lot of, you know, that use of the word man for a lot of our forebears of all kinds, they really did mean men. Yeah. But Du Bois actually had <laughs> women know. in mind. <laughs> yes. So, you know, we'll give him that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, but I think sometimes about those folks, and I think no one had done this. Yeah. No one had imagined this. Right. So it's quite a vision. It's quite a vision. And you're right. It speaks in a very kind of uncomfortable way to the kind of discussion we have now about education and very particularly the kind of discussion we have about inequity and education and race, right? Mm -hmm. That education is the key, but it tends to be framed in terms of equipping people to get the right jobs, right? To make the right kind of living, Mm -hmm. to join the economy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And he so insistently talks about you know, the essential struggle of becoming a full, flourishing human being. And and even the way he's talking, the way this language you're, you're quoting, the mm-hmm. way he talked about education, um, it's much deeper and more complicated. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that work is still there for us to do in our time. It really is. When I teach the souls of black folk and we pause as we must on perhaps the second most quotable quote, one ever feels his two-ness. 
an American, a Negro, two souls warring within one dark body. It's thrilling to see students of all kinds of backgrounds talk about double consciousness, Mm -hmm. talk about their senses of, you know, being at Yale where I teach and um, perhaps they feel like their class background is not visible in the classroom, or perhaps they feel that, you know, they are a a student from Ghana and they're interpolated into a black student body. And how do they feel about that? So you're saying that this, his idea of double consciousness actually has many facets that in in that way, it feels kind of prophetic. Um, Yes. But what that is in the 21st century in this globalized world is has all these different layers. It, I think it really does. Uh-huh. And I think that it is. It, it seems to me when I teach this to be such a gift to these young people uh-huh. to see, oh, th- there can be more than one thing going on that even feels in his language warring sometimes in one body. But it is the work of self uh-huh. to not necessarily resolve it, but just understand it, work with it. That's the ongoing work of identity that we do on ourselves, not necessarily suppressing one so that the other can rise. Um, And we're just complicated folks. He knew that. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today with Arnold Rampersad, the late Maya Angelou, and here, the poet Elizabeth Alexander in 2014. We're experiencing the imprint of W.E.B. Du Bois on the American soul, past and present. Some of the complicated path of Du Bois ideas, like communism and pan-Africanism, translate imperfectly in modern years. He also had a famously contentious clash with Booker T. Washington. Washington supported a compromise with white Southern leaders that limited opportunities for Southern blacks while enhancing basic liberties for the whole. In a sweeping essay in 1903, eight years after he had become the first black man with a Harvard Ph.D., W.E.B. Du Bois championed the critical need for a black intellectual elite, the talented tenth. The Negro race, like all races, he wrote, is going to be saved by its exceptional men. In this little essay you wrote about him years ago, you wrote, in in terms of Du Bois, even as we may walk around thinking of ourselves as racially complicated people, what does it mean to be in this post-identity era to stand the ground of our blackness nonetheless? What does it mean to sit with and contemplate our complicated blackness? And again, I feel like this is a, a challenge, you know, an edifying challenge to the way we want to talk about race as something we've moved beyond, you know, when you talk Oy. about that thrill of your, that your students have. And again, this is not just about, I mean, he's speaking to mm-hmm. other conditions aside from blackness. He's also speaking to whiteness and also what whiteness mm-hmm. is going to be 50 years from now. Yes, right? yes. Um, I feel like especially, and it's intensified since Barack Obama was elected president, mm-hmm. we have these things that happen like, let's say, the shooting of Trayvon Martin. And every time something like that happens, we then end up wringing our hands about how we still don't know how to talk about this. But, you know, I feel like what Du Bois is saying is talk about it in a complicated, reflective, contemplative way that's about being human. Absolutely. And I think that also that's what the souls of black folk as a, as a book, as a text, that that's what it exemplifies. Um, and it's a tiny book. It's tiny a little, little, little book. Yeah. Tiny little beautiful book. But I think at the end, perhaps for me, one of the things that, that wins is the culture argument. And that a people is not a people unless its culture is recognized. And that culture is one of the ways that we express our humanity. Mm -hmm. So when he says, I sit with Shakespeare and he winces not. Yeah. I have always loved that line. Um, First of all, because he's, it's a line of perfect iambic pentameter, you will note. (laughs) So I feel that what he's saying is, hey, Shakespeare, I can do what you did. I'm speaking your language. Mm -hmm. And it is perfectly calm. He's saying, we stand on the same timeline. We are, in his phrase, co-workers in the kingdom of culture. And given that, again, that struggle in the academy, in curricula everywhere, is still not complete. Mm 
we really need that argument from him that just says, Shakespeare, Du Bois, there they sit next to each other, mm-hmm. read them. So one of the, it, it was actually challenging to, um, to enter this exploration of Du Bois. And, mm-hmm. it, you know, and I guess to me that speaks to the fact that what you're describing, which is a fuller sense of this grappling that we have to do with all of the sides of ourselves, this collage. I do feel like that's something in the 20th century kind of thought it could maybe tame or compartmentalize, that we could make it more rational. Hmm, that's interesting. I don't know if this answers your question, but I've my um, 10th grade son just wrote a paper for at his wonderful school um, comparing Du Bois and Booker T. Washington. Oh, really? Yeah, oh, yeah. It yeah. was, yeah, it was, he's excited that I'm here. Because uh, they had quite a quite a tempestuous, tumultuous relationship. Well, yeah, anyway, yes, that's and, another and you see that he's, you know, what Washington was saying was, look, we got a whole lot of black people who need to work and they're not all going to write beautiful books and be college professors. So where I guess for me at the end of the day, Du Bois wins, <laughs> although, you know, it's, it's a crude, you know, you need all yeah. these different ideas. Yeah. His idea of the talented tenth—that language makes me very uncomfortable. Right, and that's that is one of the controversial. Um, just we haven't actually gotten into that, and just say a little bit briefly what the talented that idea was. Well, that that idea was um, that a race, a people, will not be led by everyone moving together. That he says it will be literally the tenth of a population that armed with fine education, armed with, you know, opportunity will lead the people forward. Mm-hmm. So, you know, who are those people? How do you get into the talented 10th? Yeah. Um, who chooses? Who designates? Why a 10th? I mean, you know, what about the class implications of that? It's a very, very discomforting idea. But I do think that what's true in that idea is that, in fact, even within egalitarian movements, even within collective movements, attention is focused on leaders, on spokespeople. So, you know, there are all kinds of important questions about how grassroots movements are organized, how decisions are made. But I believe the fact of the matter is that you don't see every face moving forward at once. And also that you know, not everybody and, wants to. Right. <laughs> right. We, kind of, we, we, think, Lead we a movement. like everyone need, wants and needs to be a leader, and it's not true. It's, and it's, it's not the way it's the not world true, works. You yeah. know, so, Stressful um, being a leader. Yes. But, you know, I think Du Bois had absolutely zero anxiety about his own status and yes. um, populist eliteness, mm-hmm. if that is a thing. Mm-hmm. He had no anxiety about being a total elite. But at the same time, when you look at all the people he educated, all the lynchings he protested, all of the words he wrote, all that he gave to millions and millions and millions of people, the tools he gave people, I feel like, okay, if you're that kind of elite, that's okay with me. Mm -hmm. I I just love that, that your son is doing this uh, paper on. So did you discover him discovering Du Bois or did he already know about him? Um, He had heard of Du Bois and Washington from me. My mother's a historian. So these were not unfamiliar names, but he had not read. Uh And I think his experience was to find all of these ideas really fresh and compelling. Um, And he was really interested in the idea that... uh, they're always, you know, sort of Malcolm and Martin or, you know, that there yeah. always need to be um, more than one idea for people to move forward. Mm-hmm. Um, he he found that very, very relevant. So more than relevant. Malcolm and Martin, that yeah, it's larger exactly. landscape. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, what else? What have I not asked you about? What have you not asked me about? Um, well, I was very happy to rediscover... <laughs> This lovely essay this lovely you essay wrote that I forgot that I wrote, um, and uh, well, I guess I don't know. I, I could read something. Yes, I'd love for you to read something that's meaningful. Yeah, um, 
He's led me to so much thinking. He's led me to aspire to write better. I mean, these are just sort of very personal things. His productivity has made me hesitate less and try to put more out there because I think that one of the tragedies of racism as it has affected intellectuals and learning is that we've had such limited opportunities and so many of our ideas are so quickly shot down that to see a Du Bois who just said, I don't care. I'm going to I'm going to write something again tomorrow. Who just keeps doing it? <laughs> yeah. And that was a really really important example. But you started us off with this idea of the interior profound interior work of who we are. Mm-hmm. Um and that phrase the souls of black folk. You know, what are our souls? What do they look like? What what are we concerned with? Do they all belong to one thing? So here I say, how do we teach our children to be aware, to question, to be tolerant, to be resilient and righteous? How do we nurture their brilliance and bravery? For those of us whose day-to-day experiences are racialized, we nonetheless all have dream space, private space. I don't think that that space is raceless or that it is without markers of identity, but I do think it's a space where those markers are rich complicated and not always resolved. And so that's what I wrote and um, inspired by Du Bois. And I think that that's not an individualizing wish. You know, that's about how can we do that work and then come together in our fullness. That's 21st century work. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Elizabeth Alexander is president of the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation and a chancellor of the Academy of American Poets. Her books include Crave Radiance and her memoir, The Light of the World. She was the fourth poet in history to contribute to a presidential inauguration, that of Barack Obama, in 2009. W.E.B. Du Bois died on August 27, 1963, at the age of 95. He died in Ghana, a center of pan-Africanist energies and ambition in that era. And that is where Maya Angelou finally met him in person. Mrs. Du Bois was a friend of mine when I lived in, uh, in Ghana. And she had invited me and my husband to come for lunch to their house. And uh, we went there, and she came out into the living room and said, I'm sorry, uh, he's not really feeling very well. He won't be coming out to lunch, but you may come in and say hello. So I went in with my husband, and I told Dr. Du Bois how afraid the white people were going to find out that he was a Negro. (laughs) And he laughed at that, and it was very nice. And we, we went back into the dining room and had lunch, and we left. And Dr. Du Bois died, I think, that same day. How would you want him to be remembered, not just oh, remembered? How do you think that his As one of legacy, the great thinkers. Yeah. For a black man at that time to teach and to learn and to study under those circumstances when people were being lynched, what Dr. Du Bois showed is that he had enormous courage. I would encourage young men and women, black and white and Asian and Spanish-speaking all, to look at Dr. Du Bois and realize that courage is the most important of all the virtues. Because without courage, you can't practice any other virtue consistently. You can't be consistently fair or kind or generous or or forgiving any of those without courage. I had this phone call with the great writer Maya Angelou three weeks before her death. This show is part of a rich, larger exploration of W.E.B. Du Bois' ideas and legacy. In our podcast feed, wherever you like to listen, 
You'll find in-depth, unedited interviews with Arnold Rampersad and Elizabeth Alexander, as well as a conversation I had with the archaeologist Whitney Battle-Baptiste. She excavated artifacts at the Du Bois home site in Great Barrington, Massachusetts. On Being is Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Maya Tarrell, Marie Sambalay, Aaron Farrell, Lauren Dordal, Tony Liu, Bethany Iverson, Aaron Colasacco, Kristen Lynn, Prophet Adewu, Casper Kyle, Angie Thurston, Sue Phillips, Eddie Gonzalez, Lillian Vo, Lucas Johnson, Damon Lee, Suzette Burley, Katie Gordon, Zach Rose, and Siri Grassley. Special thanks to Rob Cox at the W.E.B. Du Bois Archives at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and to Randy Weinstein at the Du Bois Center in Great Barrington, Massachusetts. This program is made possible in part by the National Endowment for the Humanities. Any views, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in this program do not necessarily represent those of the NEH. The On Being Project is located on Dakota land. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice that you hear singing at the end of our show is Cameron Kinghorn. On Being was created at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the John Templeton Foundation, harnessing the power of the sciences to explore the deepest and most perplexing questions facing humankind, Learn about cutting-edge research on the science of generosity, gratitude, and purpose at templeton.org slash discoveries. The Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, working to create a future where universal spiritual values form the foundation of how we care for our common home. Humanity United, advancing human dignity at home and around the world. Find out more at humanityunited.org, part of the Omidyar Group. The Henry Luce Foundation, in support of public theology reimagined. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. And the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. On Being is produced by On Being Studios in Minneapolis, Minnesota.